0: Country Podcast. This is episode number 353, and we are resuming our current series, Reverse Engineering Success. So as you may have heard on our last episode with Jeff Bloomquist, this series is all about taking a successful hunt and talking about the key decisions and decisive moments that led to that success. Today we're speaking with Garth Jensen about an archery mule deer hunt that actually spanned over a few seasons. There's a lot of lessons to take away from this story with Garth, including how to bounce back from setbacks, balancing patience and aggressiveness, some practical tips on tracking and stalking mule deer, and so much more. So I hope you guys are enjoying this series and especially enjoy this episode with Garth. As always, we do appreciate your feedback. If you have any questions or suggestions for the show, you can email podcast at exomountgear.com or if you have a very specific question that you would like us to answer on a future Monday Minute episode, look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message. Finally, it does help us a ton if you can share the show with a friend or leave a rating and review in whatever podcast app that you use. Right now, let's dive into this conversation with Garth. Welcome to the Hunts Back Country Podcast. I'm excited to chat with you, man.
1: It's great to be here. I'm excited to excited to, you know, share stories and and uh, and dive into it.
0: Absolutely. You uh you're pretty involved with the Hunt and podcast, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say that. On and off. Or... <laughs> yeah, we we uh, I'm on quite a few of them. Um, I'm certainly not the best on them, but uh, they involve me quite frequently.
0: Yeah. Well, we've had Jared on the show here, so some listeners may have heard him, um, on that from a hunting pool perspective, but before we dive into this, this story and pick apart this hunt and learn some lessons, go ahead and give us a quick kind of introduction and background of who you are.
1: So I, uh, my name's Garth Jensen. Um, I live in, I live and grew up in Southern Utah. Um, I really picked up hunting realistically, not necessarily family oriented. I mean, my, my family was in a farming and ranching background, but, uh, long story short, I got into it when I was about 14, a lot of my friends did it. And so I started to do it. And from there, I just took off and, um, eventually got to where I was hunting out of state enough to where it landed me a pretty cool position here in the hunting full with the knowledge that i gained, um, from applying out of state for a long time. And, yeah, I mean, I guess the rest is history. And now I'm part of the Hunt and Fool team and um I'm a hunt advisor here and have been with the Hunt and Fool for about going on my eighth year.
0: Awesome. We chatted, you know, a bit about the Hunt and Fool and the services and all that when we had Jared on, which you know, I'm sure some listeners have and some listeners haven't heard, but you don't need to go in like the full overview, but I'm just like really curious for you personally, that role as a hunt advisor. Tell us a little bit about. that means and what you really do
1: So realistically i would say that a hunt advisor here at hunt full obviously has multiple hats he wears um from researching states to helping other people that are just getting into hunting um, how to navigate those states and draws and what states are better for them to get into but as far as my role um yeah i mean it's it's a lot of that and real what i really enjoy is just helping helping first timers get out and and just help them understand the process and kind of put to bed some of those misnomers about you can't get into out-of-state hunting out west unless you have a gob of points and it's not worth getting in there and i like to help them out and show them the light say hey there is tons of opportunities out here and here's how you do it so um I think that kind of sums up what we do as hunt advisors here is just make it easy.
0: We'll leave uh, links to the show description. If listeners haven't checked out and full or the resources, and I will say that, you know, th- you have the options of, um, using a direct advisor and other services that are paid, but you guys give away a ton of free, helpful information as well. So listeners look for the link in the show description to go check some of that out, but diving into the story, Garth. We're, we're trying to break down and reverse engineer success for a a particular hunt and give us the really quick kind of context for what this hunt is, where it took place, the species and things like that. Just kind of super high level overview before we dive into the details.
1: So it was a general mule deer hunt, um, in Southern Utah. And I, I mean, it's an area, at least region that I've hunted quite frequently, um, and since how I was a dedicated hunter, which allows me to hunt archery, muzzleloader, and rifle, um, this was an archery hunt because I just love getting after those deer early on when I can pattern them. And so, basically, this was a <laughs> should have been a shorter hunt than what it ended up being. But this is a multiple year process of one of the you know a buck that I had found in an area that I had relocated to. Um, and you know, ended up eventually, you know, finding that buck, being able to harvest him. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess the devil's in the details.
0: So, as you said, multi year. So, if we go to the season before you ended up harvesting this buck, um, you had a shot, quite literally, took a shot. Um, well, let's start there. You, you had obviously turned up this buck, located him, decided you want to hunt him, and I'm, I know we're skipping a lot there. But take us right to the shot opportunity, uh, how that went down and then ultimately kind of the, the moments after and, um, realizing essentially that it wasn't a fatal shot.
1: So just a super quick background, like where I located this, this buck, um, he disappeared on me and got into some really thick pinion junipers and tried spotting and stalking him didn't work. Um, put some salt out, um, got him to come into some salt and actually during daylight. And so I figured my best course of action was to set up a ground blind, um, over this salt and hopefully get him to come in during daylight. So leading up to that shot was hours and hours of just sitting there. And I, I don't know if like you hunted much out of a blind, via whitetail or bears mm-hmm. or mule deer, whatever, but the. Like it's from the, basically your heart just starts racing once you see that animal and literally in the area I was hunting in, it's almost like they appear out of nowhere because they're either in this small little window or they're not. And so when he came in about basically half an hour before dark, um, yeah, I, I, I had a solid shot, 40 yards, um, just felt super confident felt great, and actually, I think, like, just looking back at it, it uh, probably hit, I mean, with with the amount of duck he did, hit where I was aiming, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, it hit him, thought it smoked him, um, got over, recovered my arrow, seen that he had busted, you know, the shaft off, and actually had a pass through, but his reaction, his shoulder had broke that arrow off. And I found the broadhead side of it, um, followed it up about, you know, 50 yards. Realized that, you know, there was some blood, but it wasn't quite that foamy red that I was hoping for. And so, yeah, came back Went well, left that night, came back the next day, followed him for two miles. And basically the last mile was just tracks, you know, every maybe 200 yards, I would find a speck of blood. Um, but you know, I was just like, man, that, that, that sucker, he went completely out of the country and, um, you know, I hadn't found blood for a long time. So anyways, I kind of just not really wrote him off, but said, I don't think that, I don't think it's a kill. Mm -hmm. Um, depends on how infection everything reacts, but I thought, man, I I've seen this, seen this before. And, I just thought I think I hit him high. You know, I yeah. think I was just above the vitals.
0: In that two miles, did you ever did you ever lay the eyes on him or you're just kind of tracking in that little bit of blood trail? You never did see him again?
1: Never saw him again. I mean, it yeah. just it like literally the area I was in. I mean, I would hit small patches of open sage, but for the most part, super thick EJ. And I was just following tracks. And realistically, what I could venture is. Um, until I kind of lost track of that track itself when he got mixed in with some other deer that were in the area. Um, yeah, it just, I felt like he was probably through there the night before when mm-hmm. I hit him and I would probably wouldn't even close to him, but I mean, I had at that point in time, I could run cameras, you know, all year long and I had cameras spread out the entire length of that, where I got him and never got another picture of him the rest of the year.
0: Wow. Jumping back to what you said about, you know, the the time you put in and then the man, how quick it happens where you have the shot opportunity after sitting for hours and hours and hours. It's tough. I've been there whitetail hunting. There, I don't have the time to do it anymore. But I used to, you know, sit dark to dark uh for whitetails. And I remember one weekend in particular, I sat I think 12 and a half, 13 hours. Um, like on a Saturday and then plan to do the same thing Sunday. And ultimately, you know, 20, 30 minutes before dark after being in a tree stand for, you know, 24 plus hours cumulatively in two days at this point, I had a shot and I blew it. (laughs) There's like a certain level of frustration there that is like a hard to replicate when you're like, I've been sitting here, you know, literally for 24 hours, all daylight before and after. And uh, and then you just blow it and it's like, it just makes you sick to your stomach and like incredibly frustrated with yourself.
1: Oh man, it, it they're hard ones to shake off. Like it, it, yeah, you just develop this pit in your stomach and, you know, especially after hitting him. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, like it, it, it was so perfect. Like everything felt so good. You know, when I recovered that arrow that night, I was like, man, I know it hit him like right, right behind the shoulder because it was it was close enough right there in that pocket to where when he rocked back and jumped forward, you know that shoulder bone coming back or that shoulder blade snapped the arrow and it was the the one I found, you know the arrow portion that I found was the uh, was the broadhead side so I'm like I had great penetration, yeah, you know it just God just the but but you know it when you see that blood you know you're like oh my gosh this isn't the kind of blood I wanted. What happened? And then you just replay everything. And then I had, you know, what, you know, a year or nine more months to replay that shot in my head thinking, I don't know if I'm going to see him again. You know, I, that's realistically, that's the reason I was hunting that area. You know, and I'm like, you know, there's other bucks, but that was the one I was hoping for.
0: Man, Going back to tracking real brief, do you I just can imagine some listeners are hearing you talk about tracking a buck for two miles and they're wondering how, right? Like how does he track or what is he looking for? And obviously there's so many variables we could get into discussing in terms of conditions and the type of ground and all that, but any, just anything super high level come to mind on any tips for tracking or anything you've learned over the years about tracking in particular?
1: So in particular, like that area, I will say tracking is more difficult when you get in areas that have larger populations of deer, like it, it just inevitably, sometimes tracking is almost impossible. If you get into areas like that in this area, it's super low densities. There's not a lot of deer. So it it's in, it's pretty, it's a little bit better to be able to track those deer. And even when you, you know, are going along and you lose that blood. Um, and then you hit some rocky surfaces and it's not quite conducive to just like follow right along. At least I can start the circle, you know, and I have a general, okay, he's headed this direction. So I kind of have that, you know, or I can start the circle until I kind of pick it up. And You know, the one thing I guess, if I had a tip, like instead of paying attention or just like looking and saying, this is a deer track try and pay attention to how the deer steps like his, his, uh, the way he pushes out on one side or the way his track looks. And obviously that can change if he hits a piece of brush and pushes out one way, but if he's just going across, you know, some standard ground, every track has different characteristics and you have to kind of look at how they push out or maybe a toe comes in further on one side or things like that. And that way, if you lose that track, you can, it's a little bit more noticeable if you have that in your head. Okay. This, this is definitely the track because this is a certain characteristic that this animal has. And that's, that's how you can kind of say, okay, I know I'm on the right track with this one.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. So you said you, after this hunt, you run cameras in the area. Sounds like, you know, after the season, at least for a while, you don't turn them up, I guess, you know, hitting fast forward. When is the next time you locate him? Whether that's preseason scouting, you glass him, whether it was on camera, how did you actually relocate him and when was that?
1: So, the following season, um, so, you know, I went all through muzzle and rifle, nothing. Um, the following season out scouting, I, you know, I'm, I'm glassing this area, I'm trying to turn up. And obviously, there's some other bucks. So, I'm like, well, kind of not necessarily wrote him off, but haven't seen him you know, and I, I spread some cameras out, you know, throw some salt out trying to see whatever is in that area. And about July, I would say, I want to say it was about the first part of July. I mean, he's, he's very recognizable, you know, and, and big, heavy, narrow, you know, fairly tall, but he's not very wide. And about July, I go and check a camera and he's not in the same district i mean he's he's kind of in the same area but he's relocated to a canyon that's about a mile and a half away and just kind of by happenstance he hits that camera so once he hits that camera and i get over there and i look i'm like oh man game on (laughs) i like and it was it was honestly it was just kind of elation because i was like man I wasn't expecting to see that buck on camera after never seeing him again, you know, I kind of thought the worst and thought, mm, I, I, he might have succumbed to that wound I, I I've seen him survive worse, but ultimately you know infection's a beast
0: so he's in a different area and this is you said July
1: Yeah, this is July. I mean usually. I mean, it's, it's still summertime, you know, they're, they're putting it on. I mean, like I say, same general area, but mm-hmm. he's, a you know, a few canyons away, but just kind of knowing the lay of the land and from hunting that area for a few years, you know, I, I kind of knew different pockets that some of these bucks like to hang. He had never been in there,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: there were some other bucks that were in that country or in that general Canyon because there was water over in there and, once I saw that over there, you know, I was kind of like, well, I'm just going to comb the area, not necessarily at this point looking for him. He was still in the back of my mind, but just combing out and saying, okay, let me see what all I can find in these different canyons. And I'm still in kind of that, uh, you know, information gathering mode. I'm just trying to get all the information and data I can on this area. And he happened to pop up.
0: So once you relocate him, does that, uh, Are you solely focused on him for this upcoming season again, then just kind of recommitting to just him?
1: Yeah. Once I, once I located him, I just, you know, all my efforts went into that general vicinity, you know, now I, I knew from, from prior years, like, okay, well he did, like he was over in this area, you know? So I know that he was over in another area. So I I don't want to completely eliminate that factor in the back of my head. Hmm. So I'm still kind of, you know, setting up multiple cameras. And the reason, the reason being is like just not solely focusing on that camera. I wanted to set out multiple cameras out there. So in the, in the event that he did, you know, travel over a mile or half a mile away and hit another camera, I'm like, okay, at least I know that this is part of his home range too. He might spend most of his time in this area. But now if I get him over on this camera over here, I know at least that is part of his area too. And now I can, you know, if I don't find him here one day, I can move over and look for him over here. And that was a pretty good, like, like say, that's something I've learned over time. But it was pretty nice because I did eventually catch him on two different cameras within about a half to three quarters of a mile of that initial, you know, of that initial camera I got him on that year. And it was kind of in that direction. Now, he never totally went back over in there where I'd hit him the year before. Whether or not he, I mean, I know deer don't have reasoning, whether or not it's because he felt stung, you know, right. and he's like, that's dangerous over there. But it was, you know, like say, I, I kind of had a pretty good idea after that. All right. I got an idea where he's at and his location. and And at least if I don't turn him up here, I know where to look.
0: Yeah. So being such a big part of this hunt in particular, and obviously some changes that have come about recently, can you give us a quick like, update on the use of trail cameras in Utah going forward with the changes in regulations?
1: Well, and this is one thing about Utah, and, and it depends on what side you're on, on running trail cameras. And what I'll say is that the difference between then and now is you can no longer run during the season. So when I was running it and I kept continually running my cameras throughout that next, you know, from August till December, that is something now you cannot do. So you can still run cameras right now in Utah from, I believe it's January 1 to July 31st, I believe. I I, I might have my dates, but I I, I think that's how it is. But you can still run cameras and gather information, gather data, you know, hopefully locate a buck you're after. But then after that, during the season, which I, I honestly, I'm a huge fan of. I don't think like once you establish where that animal's at, you can gather some pretty good data after the season, but if you have a tag in your pocket, yeah, I I think that's like, you're, you're getting to the point where trying to, you know, especially some type of cell camera, you get a ping on something and now you can run over there and hunt that area. Yeah, I think you're stacking the cards a little bit too heavy in in the hunter's favor. So, right now, if you have a tag in that area or you're actively pursuing animals, you can't run that camera from July 31st to December 31st. Now, the one thing I will say is you can still run cameras if you don't have a tag in that area. Like, if you're not actively hunting or you're not using that information from that camera to pursue animals or help a buddy pursue an animal, you can run them. Like there's there's no law or regulation against that, but uh you know that's kind of the the fine line and the um we're they're keeping people they're keeping honest people honest.
0: Yeah, yeah. So even though cameras are a big part of this hunt, you relocating this buck, etc., it sounds like you're essentially all for the the change in regulations and I think it's a fair.
1: A- absolutely. I I like say I was a fan of it when they introduced it. Um I, I, uh, I think if, you know, allowing, and trust me, I've, I've ran cameras during the season, so I know some of the advantage that you can gain from that. And I just think, you know, it's, it's a little bit too much of an advantage in my opinion.
0: So what did, what did you end up, you know, if we skip back to July, you re- relocate this deer, um, and now you have some time, like I said, you're kind of gathering information, data, seeing if he pops up on other cameras, he did. So I guess- what did you learn between initially seeing him and then kind of leading towards opening day?
1: So basically what I learned is that uh when and, and and in addition to that camera, I actually went up on the highest spot I could find that would overlook this area and cut a bunch of cedar trees or at least cut the limbs down so I at least had a, a view off of this ridge. And any spare time I had, which is another thing, like it was close enough to where I live. I could be there within 45 minutes. So that allowed me pre-work and post-work to run out and just glass as much as I could. Um, And so in between glassing and running cameras and things like that throughout the summer, I realized that when, when it was dry and I had a length of time that was at least a week to 2 weeks long where there was no precipitation which was most likely the case um he was very difficult to glass up him the other bucks that he was with he was very difficult to glass you couldn't really get an eye on him and I'm, you know there's 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 some openings in there that he would you know where there's some bitter brush and some sage brush that came out you could obviously from see obviously see from the tracks and kind of ma- moving around in there in between some of these cameras when I was checking those cameras But there were certain locations they like to feed, but for whatever reason, like when it was hot and dry, I mean, on obviously they don't like to spend time out in the middle of summer in the daylight, but other areas, you know, other places I hunt, you usually had an hour, two-hour window. That wasn't the case with him. So when it was hot and dry, it was very difficult to find him. When you had some rain move in, it seemed like about half the time I went out and looked after there was a storm or you know, two or three days after there was a storm, I would be able to locate him in some of those areas. But generally speaking, he was in a quarter mile area most of the time. So I learned that his home range was fairly tight and kind of had a little bit of a pattern on depending on if it was wet or if it was dry. Um, But as far as him hitting the cameras, honestly, It seemed like those cameras were so random that it was hard, you know, to look at it and say, man, this is going to be my best opportunity to harvest this animal is to sit in that jungle of PJ again, even though I knew that that's how it happened last time.
0: So a little bit different of an area, but it sounds like a pretty similar strategy going into the hunt, at least initially.
1: Yeah. Initially, honestly, like I, uh, um, just because I had had that opportunity the year before, And I was reflecting on some of the habits he had. Um, I just, I I still have the back of my mind. I was like, okay, this, it's similar type country. I mean, he moved, he, he he moved locations a little bit, but same type of country. It's thick. Um, You know, if, if, if it stays dry, I still thought, man, my best opportunity is probably just crossing my fingers cause a spot and stock opportunity, if I can't spot them is going to be kind of hopeless. And, you know, to be able to still hunt that country with a bow, it's, it's going to be very tricky. And so I thought, you know, I can contain my scent. I don't have to run a lot of deer out of there by moving through the country and possibly tripping over, you know, a bedded buck and blowing them all out. So I still thought, man, I, I think my best opportunity is probably going to be sitting in that line.
0: When it comes to like, Hunting out of a blind, you know, I've done that for whitetails in the Midwest. I, I don't, I haven't done it on a mule deer hunt, or honestly, it's not something we've talked much about on the podcast for a Western hunt. But diving into it, you're assessing his core area. And whether it's, you know, this season we're getting ready to talk about, or even this prior season, I guess I'm just, how do you go about setting your location and then also doing that while remaining, you know, stealth and kind of trying to keep your presence out. Cause it sounds like it's pretty thick. It's a pretty tight area. You, you got to get close. You got to set that blind in a position that's hopefully going to get you an opportunity, but obviously you don't want to be too invasive. So talk through a little bit about that, you know, uh, location selection and kind of setup. up like even when do you do that?
1: So when, when I've kind of established, I mean, For the first part of it, it's kind of a shotgun method, right? You're, you're just, you're throwing them out there to see what, see what you get. You read the sign when you're in those areas a little bit, you know, and you kind of have an idea, all right, there, you can see where they're browsing in this area. Uh, Generally speaking, there's more of a travel pattern to their tracks, more than a, a, just a browsing and kind of going to and fro to their track in certain areas. So you're kind of looking at it saying, okay, well, they're using this area right here is more of a movement area. To get to point A to point B, but seeing how this is more of their feeding area or what you're assuming this is primarily their feeding area, typically I like to kind of have somewhere from that feeding area to where you're assuming their, their, their main bedding location is. And you can't get that all the time and it's pretty, it can be a little sporadic, like it's just, you kind of have to take a general, uh, general consensus of where you typically find them and say, okay, I want to have, there's a better chance that once they get into thicker cover, they're not going to feel as vulnerable by coming in um, to some water, coming into some salt, whatever reason they're stopping for, they're stopping there for a reason. And so typically if they're out in the open, just like, you know, whitetail, they're a little more vulnerable and gun shy to hang up. You know, that's why you want to be back in there. So it's very similar to how they're setting whitetail blinds or whitetail stands. You want to be somewhere in between that bedding area and that feeding area. Um, but you kind of want to take into consideration the prevailing wind, because if you're going in there checking your camera, you don't want your wind blowing into their, you know, blowing into them or into where you're assuming they're bedded. Now, sometimes you, you mess up and you're walking through there and it's like, oh, my gosh, they bedded right here. Boom, you know. Pre season, I feel like you can get away with that a little bit to a certain extent. Once it gets right down to it and you start saying, all right, it's two weeks before the season, you want to be very cautious about how you're approaching and taking into consideration the wind, move slow, everything else. But prior to that, that's kind of how I set that up um, Mm -hmm. or try to set my blinds up. And then once you get into it, I mean, honestly, I like to have it tighter than 40 yards. I like to be within 25 yards or 30 yards because one thing I have noticed, and anyone that's uh, you know shot out of a blind or from a tree stand, or if an animal's coming in um, to water, what have you, they're on edge. So any noise at all just triggers them. Like they're they're coming inside out. The closer you can get, the less of the reaction you're going to have of them. At least like I I've watched deer completely duck arrows at 30 yards. So just you know, having that having that closer is always better. But in anyways, that's kind of how I go into setting that up. And then honestly, when I come in to check cameras, most of the time I'll glass in the morning from a safe distance. And then after it heats up and I have kind of confirmed that either I haven't seen anything in that area or hey, by now they're they're probably bedded. I'm not having to worry about catching them in transition and bumping them out of the area like 10, 11 o'clock, they're pretty much settled. Then that's when I go in and check my cameras. It kind of sucks because it's hot. Mm -hmm. So if you're hiking a long ways, but I feel like that's the safest way.
0: Yeah. Cool. So I guess, uh, let's, let's get into the season, man. Did you start hunting right away on opening day?
1: I, I did. Yeah, I did. And, and that's where I still felt like up to this point, my best, my best case was sitting a blind and, um, You know, I, I, I got in my blind two hours before daylight, had everything figured out, but I knew my chances were pretty slim because honestly, it's not like, it's not like these animals It's not like he was hitting this every day. Like I would go a week and a half period with nothing. And then he might hit it, you know, come in and get some salt and then he would be gone hit it one day, or he might just come in at night and I never saw him. And it got more and more that way, the closer it got to the season, but I, I still didn't, I still didn't feel comfortable enough during that time frame Cause we hadn't had rain for, I don't know, like it felt like a month, but it's probably like three weeks or so. So I'm like, man, I, I haven't been able to glass him up. I put eyes on him twice the entire scouting year, as far as glassing him and both times it was somewhat surrounded around a storm. So I'm like, at this point I'm going to sit the blind. And I think I sat in that blind for three days and I didn't have a, well, I had one two point and a couple of small bucks come in, but nothing of maturity, no bucks that were in that core group of bucks that he was usually running with. Um, and every time you're sitting that blind, I mean, it's any, any Western hunter knows when they sit a blind, when they're sitting in it, they know dang well that if they'd have been on the hill glass and they'd have seen it. (laughs) Right. And that's, that's, what's going through your head. So, I'm like, man, three days and nothing. I I can't take this anymore. Like I've got to do some glassing, you know. Um, but initially that's where I started off. And so it just to me, I felt like I was wasting my time. I wasn't having success. I was and granted, it's just about patience, but mm-hmm. I was not very patient with him. <laughs>
0: Well, that's what's tough. Like, that's something we've talked about, you know, in a bunch of different contexts on the podcast is, you know, most often the answer is be more patient, right? Like you have to be patient. You have to put in the time, but there, there does come, you know, like you feel like you're spinning your wheels you feel like you're wasting your time. You're questioning if you're not being patient anymore and now you're just being foolish, right? Like this flat out is yeah. not working. So there, it's always tough to make that call.
1: Yeah. And like face your sure cut bait. You know, it just, sometimes you got to pull up your anchor and move to a new spot. If this spot isn't working. And at this point in time, I was like, man, I I might not see him glassing, but I can't take another second sitting in this blind, you know, just, just staring out into this patch of pinions. Like I'm just like, I can't do it. So at that point I was, I was just committed. I said, you know what, if it happens, I'm going to spot and stock this thing. I'm going to turn him up. Eventually, we'll probably get some rain. I mean, typically over here, the rainstorms come and some of these monsoonal weather, they start rolling in about that end of July, starting in August. And I knew it was just a matter of time because we hadn't had anything yet. Sooner or later, it's going to cut loose. And I felt like if it cuts loose, that's my opportunity. You know, I don't know if I'm going to find him because like I say two times I had turned him up in, you know, two months worth of scouting. Like that's, I'll bet I'd sat on that hill, I don't know, 15 different times and to turn him up twice. I mean, the odds are clearly not in my favor, mm-hmm. but at least I had an idea of where to look. So I made the decision just to, you know, cut bait. You know, if I was going to, if I was going to turn him up, it was probably going to be under those circumstances. And so I just went to Glasson, and then I spent the next on and off the next five days glassy and just never turned him, never turned him up. You know, I, I'd almost started to write him off and just like, yeah, he, he's moved location. And I had seen some of the other bucks that he was typically with too, you know, and all summer long, but as anyone knows, like that's hunted those mule deer or at least those mature bucks, there starts to get a time frame when they start to separate themselves. Mm-hmm. you know, from, the core group of bucks they've, they've been with all summer. And I didn't know whether that had happened. You know, I thought he's probably still here, but he might just be by himself, but yeah, I was starting to lose faith a little bit.
0: Yeah. Would you like at that point kind of starting to lose faith? Were you still set on just hunting him? So I guess part of me is like, are you thinking considering stay in this area, but maybe take another buck that's mature or no, I'm still hunting this buck in particular, but now it's time to actually change areas and go try and relocate him.
1: There was one other buck in that area I located that year, which I saw him about the same amount of times. Like, I think I'd saw him maybe one more time. Um, not, I mean, he, he was good enough to where if I would have seen him, I'd go after him. And I did actually find that buck one morning and just, he was in a horrible spot, you know, and, and, and just, there was no chance of me Like I I thought, man, there's no chance of me even getting close to him at this point, you know, when, where he's at, everything else. So that, that kind of kept me in that area too. But honestly, you know, I thought, well, maybe he, maybe it is time to, time to kind of turn tail and look somewhere else, but it never really got far enough to where I actually considered that. And, And I don't know why other than maybe it was that other buck. And I was just like, well, there's another buck in here. You know, if I don't turn him up, I can turn another one up. But part of it was I just kind of felt like he was still there. I mean, I hadn't had him on camera. I I hadn't glassed him up. But almost all of the other bucks that I had been watching that summer, I would see from time to time. And what I started observing is some of them, they were separated. Like they weren't with the main group of bucks. Like they started, you know, I started seeing them, okay, two bucks over here and a buck over here, maybe this buck's over here. They weren't in big wads of 5 to 6 here and then there's a group of 4 or 5 over here. So I thought realistically that's probably what's happening. He's probably still here. I just have to stay true to the course and hopefully I can turn him up.
0: I think there's like a bigger theme in there that's worth pulling out. You're you're focused on a buck but you don't have tunnel vision, meaning you're still paying attention to the dynamics of everything else that's happening, right? And I think there's, that's like a larger principle you could apply to a bunch of hunts is don't like, yes, focus on something specific. And I don't necessarily mean it has to be like a specific animal because often guys may be listening to this and not hunting a specific target animal, but just don't get too much tunnel vision on a single thing and not step back and think about the bigger picture, the patterns and other things that may be happening that you're missing, uh, if that makes sense. because. And hearing you describe that, it's like you observing something about other bucks is giving you information about this particular buck. At least we think it is, right? Like the patterns and what could be happening. So I think that bigger principle um, is something to just keep in mind and apply to other contexts.
1: Yeah. And, and honestly, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I, I guess I didn't really think about that, but um, yeah, I mean, realistically, I mean, that's kind of what I had in the back of my mind why I never really gave it much thought. I mean, I kind of thought, well, I could go somewhere else and probably turn up a buck, but, um, I just didn't think that if I relocated to a new area, that would be my best course to find this particular animal. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it was winding down. I mean, we were still fairly early in the hunt, but I mean, there was some days that have went by and of course, this is a month long hunt, but every day that goes by, Yeah, you're just seeing the differences in the way these deer act from summer pattern to now. And you just, you have that feeling in the back of your mind. Once this gets too far along, their patterns are going to be so much different than what I've been observing the entire time. Mm -hmm. That it it just, it might be a different game plan at that point um, to try and find that animal the later it gets.
0: Yeah. So you put in the early time in the blind, you put in many more days now glassy and where do things go from here
1: well i I really think that what (laughs) what changed is more luck than anything is it broke loose finally got some storms i mean it got to where um every afternoon there was a storm rolling in um some days some days i was able to glad and this is you know I, i say that and so it it started storming I was able to, I was able to get out there, glass for him, didn't see him, but I was seeing more bucks on their feet. Same thing as the summer, like they were on their feet more. I was able to see him in some of these more open locations and I had to, I had to be to work. Um, but I knew that I could be out there one evening and I was like, okay, I'm stuck here at work. It's 45 minutes. I gotta be here till five, but realistically I take off here at work and I get out to that area, get to my glassing knob, that's all I can do. I mean, it takes me about 45 minutes to get to that spot, and then it's another 20-minute hike to that glassing knob. So basically all I thought is, you know, it rained today. There's a good chance it had been raining. Um, That's all I had to go off of, and so I was just like, I'm, I'm cutting out. I'm heading in there. I know I only got a couple hours to glass, but. If everything works out, I might have a shot. And sure enough, got out there. Bucks were on their feet. I was looking around. I, you know, I've already seen some of these other bucks. For whatever reason, he had joined up with the same group of bucks I'd seen in that area the two days prior. And he, he might have been in that same group of bucks, and I just didn't see him. Yeah. But he was in there, and I mean, it was a little, little bit of euphoria, but at the same time, you know, this place isn't the best for spot and stock, but at least I got eyes on him and I've spent enough time in this area that I think I got a pretty good idea of how I can get, you know, out of his side, out of the rest of Buck's side, and at least get into a position to hopefully give myself a chance.
0: It's always tough too, because like you said, I mean, you're not, You're not just trying to get in on this buck. He's grouped up. So you're dealing with a bunch of eyeballs, a bunch of noses, and more and more opportunities that don't put things in your favor. So how did you how did you like practically assess it like even first before the how of like, oh, I should go here, I should do this. Like, did you have to think much about is this even possible or smart to attempt this stock? Right. Because there's always the risk then that. Um, you're going to blow it and and change not only the hunt for this evening, but potentially the future of finding this buck again.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, when I saw him, the first thing that went through my head was, okay, he's up feeding. So there's a good chance given this late in the day, he's going to be on his feet feeding for the rest of the night and where he's at in his location and kind of where those animals are feeding, or at least the direction they're heading to, like, is it feasible for me to get around there and still lay eyes on him or still be in a position to lay eyes on him if they continue in that same line? And, you know, you've watched deer enough to know that they can stop, you know, pick around for a minute. It looks like they're going a certain direction. For whatever reason, they turn they have a new direction. Um, but the main thing I was focused on is I had the wind, like from the approach, the only approach I could come in from, I had the wind. And that was my, I mean, that's always like, if if you're going to plead for something, it's going to be, I want the wind. And so I knew I had that. And I was like, I haven't seen this the third time I've actually laid eyes on this buck in three months now. This is a good, it's not the best opportunity, but it's a good opportunity from where I'm sitting at right now. And uh, like I say, that little time clock in the back of my head was going off. Like you kind of have to make some of these opportunities work, even if they're less than ideal. And this was a, this was a legit opportunity the way I had kind of assessed it. But I knew there was a chance that once I disappear out of sight into those thick PJs, before I come back out to where I can kind of start to look around a little bit, knowing I'm going to be on the same playing field or the same level as him, you know, that same elevation, it's going to change it. But you know, part of that is just being in that area enough and being familiar with the surroundings. I kind of knew if there was a low spot or a little wash, I could get up and conceal my movements until the last possible second, you know, I I could I could at least make that I could at least make that help. But if I didn't know the area and I didn't know some of those little, you know, washes or or knobs or, or things like that were available. Man, you're probably in a tougher spot. So just knowing the country helped me out tremendously.
0: Yeah, especially with it being, you know, in the evening, right? It's one thing to go, all right. This is like say a high country hunt, and you you locate them in the morning and you got kind of that whole midday to work with and maybe analyze the country and think through a plan of approach and a stock and look for what terrain you can use. But in this situation, it's later in the day. You don't you don't have all day quite literally you don't have all day so the yeah. fact that you're familiar with the country um helps you like just have more familiarity to not have to sit back and wait so long to to be as i don't want to say it's critical because obviously you're you're trying to stalk into bow range on a buck it, you everything's critical but the familiarity with the time frame had to be huge
1: and everything's like you say it's on a time crunch like i i yes, you want to sit there and watch that animal because you're so excited and and you want everything to line up. And it's like, please lay down, please lay down, please lay down. But you know, realistically that late in the day, if he's on his feet feeding, he's probably not going to lay down. So you're probably not going to be able to bed him and then stock in and then get to him. And even if he does lay down, he's probably not going to be down for long. You know, I mean, it's, it's damp, it's humid. I mean, it, it, so once I spotted, once I kind of had an idea where the general group was moving to, or what their, you know, what I thought anyways, was their mindset for that evening. Yeah. I just started, I mean, I just headed out, you know, I I got my stuff together and was like, okay, it's now or never let's get this thing going.
0: Yeah. So was your ultimate goal to catch up with him on a stock, or to get kind of ahead of where you think they're going and almost stalk yourself into like an ambush, like get there and wait type position and let them come to you.
1: Realistically, that's what it was. It was the, the latter. That's what I was hoping for. And that's the direction they were moving towards. And with the wind direction going where it was, my hope and the reason I thought this was a good opportunity, because I thought, okay, I can get in front of them for the most part, Stock my way along, just, you know, pay attention in front of me because you never know when they might pick up the pace. They might start moving faster. They might slow down. Like, because once I leave side of that and I, and it's not in an area that I can keep track of them and keep checking back on them all the time. You know, once, once I commit to getting to a certain spot, I'm in the thick and now I've got to get to that spot. And so, I'm working my way up this you know, wash and all the while just making sure that I can see, making sure that, all right, the surroundings around me, he's in an open spot, but I just want to make sure I don't mess this up. Like I don't trip another buck up. I, I don't realize I'm all of a sudden on top of him. So I'm you know, working my way up through there. That's my biggest focus is just moving fast when I needed to, but once I feel like I'm in that location where they might have got to m- me by that point, if they really picked up the pace, I mean, I slowed way down. I put on some, you know, I put on some, well, I so there's some silent stalkers or whatever Nootny has over there. They're pretty good, pretty cool deals, but put on those just so any step I made was very definite. Um, it was to the point and I just started, tiptoeing my way in there all the while looking at my clock thinking okay i got about another hour to make this happen maybe hour and a half but i'm just gonna keep going and as long as i don't like i can't see anything i'm gonna assume that i'm still on the right track
0: were there any close calls before you ultimately got within bow range for good or bad close calls
1: so right there at the end um I got to the point where I was at the edge of the clearing and, you know, there was some, there was some down trees and things. It was kind of a, a bull hog area where they chopped up a few trees and, um, and you could kind of see in between certain piles of trees. And there were some that were still standing and things like that. And I was just kind of looking over and I caught the glimpse of the tops of one of the antlers. And I wasn't really sure what bucket was, and I was just tiptoeing along and I was thinking, okay, what buck is that? What buck is that? And at this point, realistically, I'm probably 80 yards, 90 yards. And like this This is where it gets to the point where it's like, okay, sometimes you always have to have luck on your side. I don't care what's going on. Like at some point in time for a, some to be successful, at least to harvest an animal, you've got to have some luck on your side. and. I made a step and I I thought the buck's antlers were facing away from me. Turns out they were facing towards me because all I could see was the top of them. And when I made that step up onto a rock, just so I could get a better vantage point to see what buck it was, it happened to be my target buck. And he was looking at me. (laughs) And so at that point, it was a stare down for... I don't know. It felt like eternity, but it, it realistically, it was probably three minutes, maybe tops, but just frozen for that three minutes at 80, 90 yards. You know, I was just stuck and I'm like, man, did I just mess this up? Like, how could I have been that stupid? Um, but you know, after that three minutes, he kind of twitched his tail and, Went back to feeding and I guess just chalked it up to the wind or <laughs> something because he went back to feeding and whew, yeah. Wow. Close one.
0: Yeah, big relief there. What do you, in those moments, you feel like you're pegged? Um, is it just the typical stay still, kind of don't look in the eyes for that? You know, I feel like those animals a lot of times do have that sixth yeah. sense of like, I don't want to look at them, like no the eye contact, but. Uh, Yeah. any, whether it's from this instance or others, like any other advice for ear pegged on a stock now, what,
1: well, if I've learned anything like on some of these, yeah, I I do the same thing. I try not to look at them in the eyes. I don't know if that makes a difference, but I'll be honest with you. Like I'm looking kind of at their legs or the ground or anywhere so I can kind of keep them in my peripheral. Yep. (laughs) Don't look right at them. But one thing I have learned, like it, if they see movement um, they're just stopped. And what, what used to happen at least earlier on, I used to think, man, okay, it's either now or never, like, I got to try something like they know I'm here. I'm busted. Um, I I, got to do something now. Yeah. I just, if the, well, with, with camel patterns, the way they are. And even if you don't run camel, I don't think it really matters too much, but They saw movement. They still don't know what it is. If they knew what it was, they're out of there. Like, if they know it's a human, trust me, they would have been gone. Yeah. So, the fact that they're still standing there, and if you have the wind in your favor, I usually just freeze up, cross my fingers, and hope they weren't too alarmed. I mean, sometimes they're alarmed enough to kind of putter off and and move over. But quite honestly, like, your best chance is to just sit still and hope. They just chalk it up to something else. You know, you never know what's going on their mind.
0: So, Buck, goes back to feeding a bit of relief. What's yep. it take now to to continue to pursue him?
1: So, again, I got a little bit lucky again. He took I don't know, maybe five, six more steps. At this point, like I'm, I'm very cautious with any movements I'm doing. I'm making sure he's looking away. Um, his head is down, and that way, it's not even in view of me because the brush is above his head. Um, I, once I established it was him, I kept his, you know, I stepped back down off that rock, kept his antler tips so that he still, he doesn't have a line of sight of me. He can't see me. So once his head's down or once I, you know, when tips go out of sight, I just kind of sneak through there and move a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Uh, and I get to one point and I haven't seen his antler tips for a minute and I'm like, I'm kind of worried and you know, I'm like, well, you know, he, he seemed like he was going back to feeding. It wasn't a big deal, but he might've started second guessing and decided to get out of there. Um, and at this point I felt like I was ranging around where he was at and I was within about 60 yards or right in there close. Um, so I'm now at this point, I'm like, okay, I probably need to get in a position or, put myself in a spot that gives me an open lane. If he's there, if he's still in that little spot. And so I'm trying to look around and find a spot that would have an open lane for a shot. If he's still there. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's still there. Cause I didn't hear any bounding. I haven't heard any snorting. Um, I just figure you know, he's probably just got his head down feeding. And so now I'm looking for lanes and, you know, you just basically got to find a lane you think is going to work and pick it. And that's what I did. And once I got into that lane and I'm just kind of peeking out around the, you know, that little patch of brush and I'm just peeking out just enough to where I can see anything, just eking my way out into this shooting lane and he's laid down. So that's why I never seen his tips again is because he's laid down Wow! And so now my heart is just racing. Like now, I'm trying to tell myself, "Okay, calm down, take a breath." You know, I know you've been chasing this stupid thing for two years.
0: Yeah, is that I was going to ask? Is that in your head at all? That previous, you know, failed shot opportunity, that extra bit of like pressure, or are you have you blocked that out?
1: No, I I wouldn't say I blocked it out. I'm trying to. Yeah, but but it's there. yeah, oh yeah, at that point I'm like like when you when you get a redemption on something like that, you just it's it's hard it's hard to block that out because when it's taken I mean when it's taken multiple years and and all you can think about is this is my chance. You know, I've screwed it up once and you try not to think that way like don't mess it up cuz like in your mind what you should be thinking is Got it. Like yeah. he just made the ultimate mistake. He is in so much trouble at this point. Like you're on autopilot and that thing is not getting out of there, but it's so, I mean, I don't care who you are. It is hard not to have some of those thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't care how many animals you've harvested. Like this is a, like, this is crunch time. And you know that at this point in time, the cards are in your favor. Yeah. He's laying down facing away from me. Like I'm in a shooting lane at this point. That's when, you know, if something happens, like to mess it up, you messed it up because mm. you put yourself in the best possible position that you can be in. And so that's just, I mean, it's pressure, you know what I mean? And, and, and spot and stalking is, is, is tough because like, there's a lot of time leading up to that that allows you to think about things to, you know, replay, you know, replay last year, replay different stocks. and, And now all of a sudden you by some miracle have done everything right. And everything's went your way. And now you've got this animal bedded. And after ranging him, he's 40 yards, you know, I'm like, man. And then, and then it's just a standoff and those standoffs. Like if he would have been up feeding, And perfect broadside, once I cleared that bush, that's best case scenario. Because now I don't have any time to think. Mm -hmm. It is autopilot. Yep. But now he's laying down, facing away from me. (laughs) And I'm like, okay.
0: Even more time to get in your head. or Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, and everything goes to your head. Like, do I throw a rock? You know, do I, do I like, do I kick a brush? Do I do this? Do I get him stand up? Because at this point in time, I probably got. 30 minutes of light left. I don't know how long it's going to be. And anytime it starts, light starts to fade, the temperature start to cool you back your mind. You're like that wind isn't stiff. Yep. Like if it's not stiff, it's got, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a chance it could switch. Now all of a sudden you're in 40 yards. Like you don't need much of a switch for that scent to get into that animal. It's just a molecule to get into his nose. And he's like, too much for me. I'm out of here. And instead of standing up and feeding, he blows out and you got zero shot. Mm -hmm. So all those things are hitting you, you know, and you're, and you kind of have to block them out to a certain extent and just go back to that same. If it's meant to happen, it's going to happen because you should have time. And that's the one thing I know Jared here always says, and that's why he writes it on his bow time. Like don't rush the shot. Yeah. don't do something stupid. And typically when you rush it, you're doing something stupid. Sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't.
0: Yeah. And just going back to that mental game, cause I think it's really important. You, you can't control what thoughts come, but you control which ones you hang on to or which ones you focus on. So it's like that doubt or that pressure or the anxiety or all that stuff's like going to come, you're going to get that kind of like flood of this coming, but it's what you choose to then focus on or do you push that out and refocus on the positive refocus on, no, this is a great opportunity. Everything's in my favor. Stay patient. Stay, you know what I mean? Cause, yep. um, yeah, it's just really important. Yes. The thoughts come, you can't control the negative that may come, but you ultimately are in control of what, what you hang on to and what you focus on.
1: That's a great point. I mean, when you're, when you're in that moment, um, kind of those, and that's what's hard is, um, you think about some of the past moments you've engaged in, or you've had, or, and, and I'll, I'm a firm believer in the best lessons that you get are from failure. And you think of what you did wrong last time, you know, what you should have done. And even though those same thoughts come into your head, like, Hey, like just, man, I, there, there there's no, there's no saying he's going to stand up. Like you are in a good spot right now. Just Like make a little noise, get him to stand up. No, no, just relax. Yeah, (laughs) He did that before and (laughs) then it didn't turn out so well for you. So just relax and, and play this one out.
0: So how does it play out, man? As you said, he's down 30 minutes of daylight left. You're wanting to stay patient.
1: So, I mean, everything's gone through my head and I'm sitting there thinking, I mean, I've ranged him by now. I've probably ranged him 50 times if I have ranged him once. And so I'm pretty confident that he's sitting at, I think he was 42 yards. And, you know, it's just kind of that thing. Like you're just waiting, waiting, waiting. You're thinking of all the things that could potentially go wrong. And just when all those thoughts are going through your head, he stands up, you know, gives it a little stretch forward. You know, now now all the thoughts are going through your head. Oh, he's facing away. Well, now all of a sudden when he stands up, it's a realization that like you take a deep breath and he's probably going to hear you. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, now he is in full view. I'm in full view. Like I'm in this shooting lane. I got nothing blocking me. If he turns broadside, there's a pretty darn good chance that he's going to see me when I draw. Mm -hmm. Now you're like, oh. Like, what have I put myself into? I went from the best case scenario and the best possible, um, you know, shot opportunity I can have to this thing's in full view. And he didn't stand up broadside. He stood up facing away from me. And now when he turns broadside, if I draw, he's realistically going to see me draw how he reacts. You don't know, you know, he might chalk it up, but when you're 40 yards and there's a considerable amount of movement that happens, you're taking a risk, you know? And so you're just, I, I was, I was a mess. I was just like, okay, what, 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 what I do, what, what I do now, what do I do now. He put his head down. I felt like, okay, I'm going to draw. I'm assuming he's going to turn. Let's see if it happens. I felt like this is my opportunity to get drawn without him seeing me. Realistically, I got a little bit, but honestly, that's probably not the best thing to do. Like, I, I never like to draw on an animal until I, they offer an actual shot. But given that situation, I felt it was the best. And honestly, I probably got a little lucky. Because when I drew back, when he had his head down, he quartered slightly away from me. Those are my favorite shots because the size of that kill zone, even though it's probably not, but the size of that kill zone with the quartered away animal and bow in your hands, that kill zone is a lot bigger. Yeah. Oh, I was like, man, this, okay, yep, I just got to settle the pin. I got to make sure everything works. And then just watching him, watching him, watching him. Arrow goes off. Of course, I mean, he, you know, comes undone because there's a loud slap in the background, and and it's towards his back end. So he's probably thinking the booger man's coming. <laughs> and it hit, I mean, I, I, I – I don't like spine shots, but man, he ducked and came down. It clipped him right in the spine. Like, I mean, just pretty much dead center in the spine. I mean, it angled up in, you know, kind of hit his spine and then angled down, but just dropped him, you know? And then at that point, you know, my first thought, just cause I've had some bad situations when you hit an animal and you think, oh, he's down. He ain't down till he ain't breathing. Hmm. You know, so my first reaction was just to get another arrow, get up closer where I could see him, got up closer. I could see, I could see he was still struggling. I don't want him to get to his feet. It's not like a gun where you can shoot again. You know, so I just picked a spot right behind his shoulder where I knew I was going to hit him right in the lungs or heart, um, shot again. I mean, that, that pretty much ended the ordeal, but, um, just, yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, I remember the, anytime you have that much into it, um, or what feels like that much into it and you kind of get that overwhelming sensation of accomplishment and yeah, it's, uh, it's probably why, you know, most people hunt is, uh, you know, aside from just how incredibly nice of a lifestyle it is to be able to go out and harvest something on your own and, you know, on their terms. It, uh, yeah, that sense of accomplishment you get from putting that much into or investing that much time and then having it come to fruition because, you know, most of the time it doesn't. And when it does, it's feels pretty good.
0: Absolutely. Especially, especially in those moments, that spot and stock, that close bow range, when you have all that, call it like tension or anxiety of like before the shot. And then just that kind of like flood of relief when he's down in sight.
1: Yeah. And, and that's the best way to describe it as a flood of relief because it, it absolutely is like, oh, just the amount of relief it was just to actually be walking up on, uh, on an animal that you, you know, realistically nine months ago, you know, I was like, well, he could be gone forever. I don't know if I'll ever see him again, you know, And, and on a general deer hunt, mature bucks are hard to come by. I mean on any hunt realistically mature bucks are hard to come by um but when you have you know that size of an animal or you know a mature animal laying on the ground in front of you it just you know that that's like those are those are pretty special moments at least that I take and I cherish and I try not to take for granted because they they don't come around very often
0: Well, that's a great way to cap this conversation. I hope that you guys are enjoying this series as much as we have enjoyed having these conversations with the guests. Once again, this series will continue and we have several more episodes coming. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button so that you receive those future episodes automatically. And once again, if you'd like to get in contact with us, just send an email to podcast at exomontgear.com or look for a link in the show description that says leave us a message and you can ask a question that we will consider airing on a future Monday Minute episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.